The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. I find it fascinating when you when you stop to think of how different things that are just natural in every one of our lives and how much time they start to take up. When you start to think, all right, if I do this for this amount of time on this day, then that means on a week, I spend this much time on a month and then on a year. And then somebody's job it is to start to calculate, well, if this is just kind of average human behavior, how many hours of our lives do we spend doing different activities? And so I found the internet article article, so it must be true because it's on the internet. They had a few, they looked, they looked accurate, a few different statistics that what they say for the average person, the average person, this is how much time they spend in the average person's lifetime doing certain things. Of course, the number one activity of any person that you spend the most time on is sleep. The average person will sleep for about 225,000 hours of their life. That's a lot of hours, a lot of sleep. The average person will eat for about 35,000 hours of their life. I hope it's good food since we're spending that much time on it. The average person will drive for 35,000 hours of their life. Now, some of you who work up in Silicon Valley but live in Morgan Hill are like, that is way too low. That's the last two years. That's uh, like, that is way too low, right? So some of you, it's probably a lot higher. For some of us, it's a little bit less, right? But a lot of our life is spent driving. For those of us who are, who are younger, they estimate that the average time span from here on out for the average person will be, you will spend 25,000 hours of your life on social media, scrolling through Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat, looking at it. And then they say that you will spend approximately 12,000 hours of your life exercising, meaning you will spend twice as long posting about the workout that you actually spent doing when you went to the gym over the course of your life. And then they, they went and looked and the average person will spend approximately 90,000 of the hours of their life working. 90,000 hours of the average person's life is spent working. And it's approximately a third of the waking hours of your entire life are spent working. And so today we're going to talk about work and how the Bible and what it has to say about how as Christians, we should uniquely view the jobs that we've been given, the jobs that we have. And we're going to talk about how these things are true, what we're going to talk about today, whether you're the entry-level employee making minimum wage, or whether you own the company, or you're near the top. These are true regardless of where we find ourselves. And as we've been looking through these passages, it's just a reminder how the gospel changes and is called to transform every area of our life, including for those of us who are Christians, how we view work and our actions and attitudes at work. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open them, please, to the, the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 6 today, starting at verse 5. And we've been working through Ephesians 6 this fall. For those of you who thought it would never end, it does end. Next week, we will finish off the book as we finish through Ephesians 6. And where we've been the last few weeks, if you've been here, we, we in chapter 5, it talked about being filled by the Spirit. And one of the characteristics was that is being ready to have an attitude of submission in different human relationships where God calls for it. We've then looked the last three weeks at that attitude in marriage. Last week was the attitude 
as parents and children. And then this week, the attitude has to do with work relationships. The immediate context, if you look down at chapter five and you read that first word, it says bond servants, or if you have a different translation, this is from the ESV, a different translation will say slaves. And so before we jump in, it's, it's helpful to remember that this book was written almost 2,000 years ago, this letter to people who lived in a specific context. And so slavery or being a bond servant, indentured servitude to someone back then is very different from our modern conceptual minds of it, right? If you were raised in the U.S. and you hear someone talk about slavery, almost most likely you think about slavery in our country in the context that we had it in. But it was very different a couple thousand years ago. In fact, in the Roman Empire, which is when this book was written, approximately 20 to 35% of the entire adult population would have been slaves. They would have been servants, indentured servants to their masters. And with their estimates, it's likely that this is over 10 million people throughout the Roman Empire. But it looks different than we have it and may conceptualize it Today, And so I'll just read for you, this is a little lengthy quote, but to me it's a helpful summary and nuance as we think of, of who these people are that Paul is addressing, gives us some context as to their setting. It says this, in the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons actually sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 or 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their own freedom and their natural inferiority was not assumed. And so while the Bible in this passage here does not explicitly condemn slavery, it certainly is not embracing it and saying this is how it should be. But it's helpful for us to see it's a different setting. It was something that people often entered into voluntarily. It was for a measure of time. It was not based upon race or ethnicity or background. And actually, if you know anything about history, you'll know that the Bible and and scriptural teachings are actually foundational for freeing slaves historically. And those movements were based out of an understanding of scripture. And this passage certainly affirms the dignity and worth of every single person. That's why it's specifically written to them. And when we think of their ancient setting, right, of slaves and masters, nearly, nearly every scholar is saying that this, we can apply this in our modern setting to our understandings of work in our modern day, of what it means to work for someone else. Now, we're not their slave, they do not own us, but to be underneath the authority of someone else, as well as to, we, there are people who are over others, right, who have an authority given in these situations to others. And so the principles are different from back then to today, but will hopefully still apply. All right, let's jump in. Thanks for bearing with me. Verse five says this, bond servants or slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
The first way that the gospel transforms our work is it gives us a transformed standard, a transformed standard to how we think about work and to whom we think we are serving where we work. I love this phrase to start. It says, bond servants, obey your earthly master. See, the word master is the same word as the word Lord, which is Jesus is normally referred to. That's why he specifically says your earthly master. So he says as slaves, obey your earthly Lord out of service for your heavenly Lord. Acknowledge that this is just in this time, in this position, but that you serve them. And remembering that by serving them, remember it says there in verse six, that we all are bondservants or slaves of Christ. So how, how are they called here? How do we serve as slaves of Christ? Well, it says in verse five that we should serve with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling, it's a phrase of reverence and awe, not before a person or an individual, but of reverence and awe before God. This phrase, fear and trembling, always refers to our human posture before the Lord. And the most well-known passage of using this phrase is in Philippians 2.12, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And saying in these relationships, the one to whom you really fear, the one to whom you really serve is not the person above you, but you're truly serving God by performing these things. It says to do secondly with a sincere heart. The literal translation is with singleness of heart. It talks about the integrity, the focus, the faithfulness that they were called to do the tasks that they had been given. This sincerity of heart, the last phrase in verse five was to be done as you would Christ. Just as in chapter five, verse 22, and then back last week in chapter six, verse one, they're called to submit, understanding other themselves, but they're to serve the other one. Why? Because they're doing it as they would be serving Jesus. And it's the same, the call for these slaves. Serve Jesus, I love this phrase, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers. Right? Not just to attract the attention of others. Not just to, so you look good when people are walking by. Not just for the favor of your boss, but you're actually working for the glory of Jesus. See, what, what he's pushing here in verse 7, you render service to all, doing it as to the Lord and not to men. It, it, I think it helps us if we ask this question. If for those of us who work and, and are involved in employment, when you think about your job and what it is that God has called you to do, I want to ask this question of us, for whom are we working? For who are we working? Now, I'm not asking like, what company do you work for? I'm not asking who is your boss or who's your direct report. But the attitude that you carry about yourselves while you're at work is for whom do you work? For what are you working? For some of us, it's we're working for the paycheck and the paycheck alone, right? We're like, I will only do the minimum amount required so that you will still pay me and keep me employed for as long as I want it, right? Do not expect anything more than that. Do not expect a good attitude about it. That is why I'm here. I'm only here to collect paychecks. Right? This is like in school when you were a kid and there was always that kid who would raise his hand anytime the teacher would say something. And they'd be like, hey, is this going to be on the test? Basically, like if I don't have to know this, I'm going to entirely forget it. So please tell me. Right? And some of us carry this attitude into adulthood that we want to do the very minimal amount required, but still get by. We're just working for the paycheck. That's what we're, we're really working for. 
Or another similar motivation is we're working for the weekend, right? We're like, just get me through till 5 p.m. on Friday, and then I can relax. And we just hold on to it. We have a good two days, and then Monday comes, and it's all over again, right? Like 5 p.m. on Friday, it's coming. It can't come soon enough, right? And we're just getting through. We're not enjoying. We're not focusing on our work, but we're just working so that the weekend would come and we would have another break. Some of us are working for human approval, We're hoping that by what we're doing, that our boss sees us. We're working for the approval of others. Maybe we're doing what we do for the approval of our family or for our parents, that we're doing it to try and get the win the approval of others. And as he calls out here, it's easy then if we're focused on the approval of others to work differently based on how people see us, right? If we're by ourselves doing something versus when our boss is in the room, are our actions the same or are we working to please someone else? But he calls these servants to, and I think what God calls each and every one of us as Christians to, is that when we work, and when we think about our work, who we all are to really work for if we're Christians is we are working for God. We are serving Jesus through our lives in the services that we do. See, the gospel impacts every area of our life. And that's why he says to do this as to the Lord and not to men. In a similar passage in Colossians chapter three, it says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. No matter what we're doing, then it matters as followers of Jesus, how we do it. We represent Jesus, not so much by the career path that we have, but we represent Jesus by how we work. Are we working for him or are we working for ourselves, for a paycheck to impress others? See, the the reality is, is as Christians, our heart should be so singly focused on worshiping Jesus, on serving him in every area of our lives, that this pours over into how we work, recognizing that the quality, the behaviors, and the attitudes that we have at work don't just reflect myself as an employee, but as a Christian, it reflects Jesus to the world. That Jesus is seen in and through us. The reality is our work ethic, how we work, as Christians, should make Jesus look good. How we work as Christians should make Jesus look good. As I was studying this passage this week, I was reminded, maybe because it's talking about slavery as well, but in in the Old Testament, if you know, in the end of the book of Genesis, it talks about, it highlights the person of Joseph, right? Joseph was a young man serving in his family when he was sold by his brothers into slavery. Then what did he do when he was in Potiphar's house, a high-ranking official? He worked hard. God used him. God blessed everything around him till he was falsely accused and ended up in prison. Then what did he do? He said, well, what was me? I'm way down. No, he continued to work hard. God blessed and prospered him till ultimately the fortune shifted and he was second in command over the whole known world. But here's the thing, excuse me, Joseph was working just as hard in prison as he was in the palace, right? He was working to glorify God and give God glory no matter what his circumstances were. As Christians, how we work should be testimony to Jesus. Now, I, like probably most of you, had certain jobs when I was in college, 
right? Because you got to pay for college. You got to pay for food just to get through. And I had a few different ones, but the one that I had at the end of my college for, for about a year and a half is I worked as a barista at Starbucks and I did the opening shift, meaning I was there at 4.30 in the morning, four days a week. I was not a lot of fun in college. I was like 9 p.m. I'm like, good night, everybody. I'm about to get up soon. Like, go have fun. Get out of my room, please. And so I worked at a Starbucks, and it was about a mile from where I went to school. And where I went to school was specifically a Bible college for those who were going into ministry. And about half of the people who worked at this Starbucks were college students from that college. But our manager, our regional manager, the shift supervisors, none of them were. And I remember I worked there for about a year and a half and you get to know people pretty well and you're working in close quarters with people. So I had a pretty good relationship with my manager, my boss, who was a great boss. He actually won the award for manager of the year for Starbucks over the whole country the year that I worked at the store. So he was a very good boss. And I asked him one day, I said, why do you hire so many Bible college students when it's actually against what you believe. He was actually antagonistic towards Christianity often, but he kept hiring all these Christians to work for him. I said, why is that? That like, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. He's like, well, well, there's two reasons why I hire so many of you college students. He goes, number one, you're not gonna steal from me. And number two, you work harder than anyone else. And I thought he is against the teachings of the Bible. He doesn't want anything to do with Christianity but he likes something about our lives. See, I don't know where Michael is in his relationship with Jesus. I haven't talked to him in 14 or 15 years, but I pray that because of the testimony that Christians had on his life at work over years and years and years, that he would start to see a little bit of Jesus through their lives. And that was just through making and serving coffee. That wasn't any grand work that God had called any of us to do there, but it was significant and important and it can start to make a difference, not in necessarily what we do, but in how we serve in the places that God has placed us. So is Jesus honored with how we work, with our attitudes, with our actions? See, some of us are working our dream job and it's a little bit easier, I think, when we're working a dream job for it to be like, yes, I see how God's working. For some of us, you're just working a job, right? You're just paying the bills. And even then God calls on us then to honor him and how we work and how we live our lives at work. Verse eight says this, render it with service to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. The second way the gospel transforms our work is it gives us a transformed motivation, a transformed motivation. When our work is done, as we talked about, as primarily service to the Lord, not necessarily service to a certain boss or to a certain company, then we can start to have this motivation where what we're looking for is not a reward from any human person, a reward from any human company, but we're actually looking for is what God will bless us with through our service to him. See, it's comforting to know, isn't it? That he talks about this, how, how nothing escapes God's sight. That we will receive anything good that we do back from the Lord. When our work is done with God as the intended audience, it does not disappoint. And Paul here is going back to this principle, right? Which is found throughout scripture. Generally speaking, that God blesses those who do good to others. 
All right, God blesses those who do good to others. Now, that is not like a principle where it's like, okay, so if I go out and I buy someone lunch at the fast food restaurant, then I can go home and I can tell God what he has to do for me. No, it's not your tool to manipulate God. And so don't do one thing and then say, well, God's gonna do this for me. But in general principle, as followers of Jesus, as we do good to others, God blesses us for it. And what he's saying is here is this, the motivation at work, should be to do good to others, to serve others, knowing that in the future, God will bless you for it. He may not do it in the present. It may not look like how you thought, but in the future, God will bless you for in the present, serving God and serving others. See, in scripture, oftentimes the future is used as motivation to how we should live lives in the present. And this command here to think of the future and how we shift how we think now is to all groups. Notice he starts a transition at the end of verse eight. This is for those, whether you're a slave or a free person, this is for both. The Bible often talks about the future being motivation. One of the big ways that the future is motivation for how we live our lives now throughout scripture is that Jesus is returning, right? The return of Jesus to this earth is motivation for how we live our lives. Second Peter chapter three says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? When you look at the end, you say, well, what, how should we live in light of the future as followers of Jesus. And we have that eternal, that future looking perspective that changes how we live now. There's passages that help us see how living now will benefit uh, for us in the future. Second Corinthians five says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, Paul there is not talking about that if you do enough good things, you earn your salvation, the judgment seat of Christ. If you think that, go back to Ephesians chapter two and just read the first 10 verses, right? That is not what he's saying. But what he's saying is this, as we do good, as God has placed us, we do good. God will reward, God will bless us for how we live our lives in service to him and in service to others. And knowing this, that God sees every single thing that we do and will reward it, he doesn't forget us, should motivate us now that no matter where we find ourselves, no matter how much our boss approves or overlooks everything we do, we should continue to serve realizing that God sees everything and he will reward us. See, this idea of future reward should be motivating for us in the present. I remember when I was in seventh grade and I went to a, a small Christian school growing up. And I was in seventh grade, the junior high at this school, it's just seventh and eighth grade. And near the end of the school year, we had like an all school assembly of all the junior high and high school kids. And they got up front and near the end of it, they called up for each class, the person who was one of the two highest grades in every class. And I was pretty smart and did well in school. So I got called up for a few of those when I was in seventh grade. And you know what? I was like, I like this. This is pretty cool to get publicly acknowledged. And I said, I was standing up there. I'm like, I want this next year for every class. I'm a little competitive. Can you tell? 
right? And so there was this future reward that, hey, if I do good enough, I will get this reward of getting this next year. And so the next school year in eighth grade, this is a public confession. The next year I did enough extra credit in eighth grade to make sure I got straight A pluses in eighth grade. A's weren't good enough because that wouldn't necessarily get me top two and get me the award that I was wanting afterwards, right? But I did all this work, right? That's good motivation. Why? Because I wanted the reward at the end of it. See, when we realize this, that God doesn't miss any of your life. Have you ever done something at work and your boss has no clue what you did? And then he gives credit to the other person who had nothing to do with it? And you're like, what the world's going on? God sees that. Have you ever had the boss who took credit for your hard work and you got none? God sees it. God sees every single thing that you have done out of the goodness of your heart, out of service to others, and he sees it all. And as Christians, we can rest in the fact that God sees it. God will bless us for the goodness of our lives, what we do to others, even though no one else may ever see it or may ever recognize it on this earth. As Christians, our motivation isn't to get approval from any person. It's to get approval from God. And this can continue to motivate us even when we are in situations where we are not getting the approval, where we are underappreciated. We can remind ourselves that God sees us and God will reward us. The passage shifts in verse nine and focuses on masters, those who are over others. Verse nine, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The third way the gospel changes work is it gives us a transformed perspective. A transformed perspective on work and where it lines up with everything else going on in our world, everything else in our lives. See, the command of masters, which would have been crazy to them, is to do the same. Do the same to them. Now, what exactly is Paul saying? Well, what he's saying is just as for a slave, their attitudes and actions are to be governed by their relationship with Jesus and should reflect it. He's saying those of you who are over others, that also is true in your life. That your attitudes and your actions and how you treat the people who work for you and are underneath you should reflect your relationship with Jesus as well. He specifically calls here for the end of threats. Threatening, which would have been a common thing in the ancient world, a common punishment towards slaves. And he's saying that may be culturally acceptable, but that's not characteristic of how a Christian treats others. And because of that, it's not characteristic of masters how you treat your slaves. That is not characteristic of your life anymore. He calls here on those who are superiors to create an environment and a culture where there's flourishing and there's care for everyone around and I love this last phrase that he ends this section with, right? That, that realize that you both have a master in heaven, right? Slaves and free, you both have a master in heaven. You both have Jesus, God is there. And that last phrase, and there is no partiality with him. There is no favoritism with God. I think that phrase in light of what Paul has been talking about gives us, at least it does for me, two warnings when it comes to work and how we think about work in our worlds. The first warning is this, is that as Christians, we should be careful how we define success. 
As Christians, be careful with how we define success. Because in the ancient world, one of the dividing lines in their time was, were you a free person or were you a slave? And because slavery was not lifelong, it would have been very easy for the entire focus of someone's life. If you were a slave, the entire focus, all of your life was about one thing, getting your freedom achieving your freedom. That could have easily been it. And you could have been like, yes, once you get your freedom, then you are a success. But notice what Paul says here, that all of us serve a master. All of us serve a master, whether we are slave or free, whether we're at the top or the bottom, we all serve him and there's no favorites with God. See, what good does your earthly status get you in heaven? None. God is not impressed by earthly CEOs. God is not impressed by how many budgets we manage or how many people report to us. And what he's cautioning there is that when blonde servants would think my success in life is becoming free, the gospel reframes it. So no, success in life, if that happens, that's great. But success in life is not about becoming free. Success is in serving Jesus where he's placed you. And often in our time and culture, that success can be moving up the next step. It can be another zero in the payday. It can be more money in the bank account. It can be better houses, bigger vacations, another vacation home. Success is just moving up this ladder that we have imagined for our lives. And if God has blessed you in that, there's nothing wrong with that. But as Christians, we need to make sure that success is not just defined in upward career movement. Success is defined in are we serving Jesus where he's placed us? Because we do not impress God with our titles, with our earthly status. God is not impressed with our bank accounts. God is impressed when our hearts serve him. And success needs to be measured around that, not some earthly standard because there's no favorites with God. The second warning that this passage has for us, I think, is is for us to be careful where we place our significance. Be careful where we place our significance as Christians. See, work is important. You'll spend about 90,000 hours of your life doing it. It's important. And God has things to say about how we serve him, where he's placed us. But don't miss this. Work is important, but it's not ultimate. You won't be a CEO in heaven. You won't have a title for something, a manager of this, assistant to that in heaven. There will just be children of God in heaven. It is not ultimate. Matthew 16 warns us, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? See, as followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that we are placing our significance in the ultimate of who we are in Jesus, not in the temporary of this world. That our significance is found in him, not in anything that we do. Any status Any privilege that we have in this world is temporary. It's all temporary. It will go away when Jesus returns or when we die. This world is short and eternity is long. So as Christians, let's act like it. Let's find our significance there, not just on the short term. See, this this perspective, I think, is so necessary for us because for many of us, many of you, the work that God has called you to is significant work. 
It is huge. It shapes our world, especially in this area where we live, right? In the Silicon Valley. There's people who are part of our church who the decisions they make and the things that they build and the people they interact with have literally worldwide consequences. It's significant things that God perhaps has called you to do, but it's not the ultimate thing. Our significance as Christians is not found in moving up some chain and some title and something we can do at work. Our significance as Christians is found first and foremost always in our relationship with Jesus. And too often we lose sight of that. In this world that just focuses on you need to do more, you need to be more, you need to make more, we can lose sight of the fact that the most significant thing about me is not what I can do for someone else. It's not what I do for a living. It's who I am in Jesus. That's the most significant thing about any of us. So how does the gospel impact our work? It reminds us that wherever we work, whether it's at the top or the bottom or somewhere in between, we're doing it for Jesus. Whether we're making coffee, whether we're teaching school, whether we're managing hundreds of people and millions of dollars in budgets, we as a Christian, we serve Jesus not a company, not a boss, we serve him. That our approval is not found in other people, but ultimately we're working for the approval of God, that he would see our work and that he would recognize us for how we live our lives. And it reminds us that as important as our work is, it's not ultimate, it will fade away. And what is the most significant thing about us is not what we do or who we work for, but who we are in Jesus. God, we do thank you. We do thank you for those of us who believe and who we truly are in you, that we are your children and we are loved by you forever. God, I pray for those in our church, God, who have positions all over this city, all over this area, this county, God, that you would use each and every one of us uniquely where you've placed us to point people to Jesus. God, whether it's a job that's temporary or whether it's our dream job, would we seek our lives not as serving someone else, but as ultimately as serving you? God, would you use our efforts to serve you, to represent you where you've placed us, to change this city, to change this area, to point people to Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.